Hi there, and welcome to this IFC podcast. My name is Beth Hale. I'm a partner at CM Murray, uh, and we are rerunning or sort of summarising the brilliant panel session that we had at the IFC conference on the 14th of June in London um, about sexual harassment, senior executives, sexual harassment and NDAs. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by some, although sadly not all, of the amazing uh, panel that we had with us on that day. And we're just going to talk through some of the key issues we discussed. Um, so first I'll introduce the panel, then I'll sort of summarise what we're going to talk about and then we can uh, get talking. So first on my screen is Lindsay Wagner, who's um, she's uh, an amazing, hugely experienced employment lawyer. But most recently, she's the founder of Moxie Mediation, which provides international mediation services to employers. Uh, and prior to that, she practiced labour and employment law for over a decade. Um, next is Claire Dawson, who's partner at Niche London employment law firm BDBF. She's dual Irish and English qualified, and she has huge experience advising senior executives on their risks and their obligations. Uh, next is Inga Derda, a partner at Bell Law, the first Belgian niche firm to focus exclusively on employment law. Um, and she, again, has extensive experience uh, advising employers and employees on handling allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, last today, but by no means least, mm. Anne-Marie Beringa um, from Van Hal, sorry, Van Hal Advocaten in the Netherlands. Um, and Van Hal Advocaten are our CM Murray's um, partners in the uh, in our International Employment Law Alliance in and Guard and Anne-Marie advises both senior executives and employers again on um, on sexual misconduct issues and other employment law issues. So today we're going to be discussing how far if at all uh, we have come in dealing with sexual harassment cases since Me Too, what changes there have been from a legal regulatory cultural perspective uh, in the various jurisdictions and how those changes may have driven and may continue to drive into the future increased transparency, increased accountability and prevention of sexual harassment in the workplace. I'm going to come first to you, Lindsay. Do you think there has been a significant legal or cultural shift uh, in approaches to sexual harassment in the workplace since Me Too? And how does that look in the States? Sure. Thanks so much, Beth. So, yeah, we have seen uh, shifts uh, both in cultural in the workplace and informal changes and then with um, more robust regulations speaking specifically to sexual harassment. So we started to see a trend of employers who were more concerned about making sure that their handbooks and policies had proper complaint procedures embedded within them so that the complaints go to the right place and that um, employees know how to submit a complaint to get properly handled. We also started to see employers more interested in um, uh, providing their complaints or involving a neutral third place uh, investigator to investigate those complaints to make sure that they really do have an unbiased investigation uh, when those are handled. But on the legal side uh, and throughout the United States, we've seen regulations at a state and federal and even municipality level uh, speaking to sexual harassment. So we've seen um, requirements for sexual harassment training uh, within the workplace and with bystander training. Certain states and municipalities required an element of bystander training. And even more recently, we've seen uh, places like Chicago that have actually required a separate standalone component for bystander training uh, as it relates to sexual harassment. So we've definitely seen 
some of these changes in place uh, in a formal and informal level where employers and the states and regulators are trying to make sure that they're handling these issues before they arise to the level of litigation uh, to help educate employers and employees about proper conduct in the workplace as it comes to sexual harassment. Okay, thank you. That's really interesting. And um, Inga, do you think you've seen anything similar in, in Belgium, a sort of similar cultural shift? Absolutely. We have already a law since many years on harassment, but it was never applied. And since Me Too, we have seen a lot of cases, especially because we have a very important uh, sexual harassment cases against TV uh, personalities. And this triggered um, a lot of cases um, in common practice. So if you asked me 10 years ago how many cases you're dealing with on harassment, I would have said none. And now it's, yeah, I think I have 10 per year, which is, which is huge. So there is a lot of um, change in minds and in settings. And we have the law, but it's finally applied. And do you think that's partly because people are more aware? Because yes, of course. Linked to... yeah, yeah, there were two big procedures on the television with two uh, main TV personalities, one artist, a very famous painter uh, in Belgium, uh, Jan Fabre, um, and it triggered people to, to take action, absolutely. Yeah. And Claire, um, in the UK, do you think that there has been a, a shift? And, and just with perhaps a sort of particular focus on how that impacts on senior people in senior positions in organizations yeah I mean I, I mean I think it's been primarily a cultural shift here in the UK we haven't really seen any new legislation our government's been very busy with other priorities in terms of legislation it did say back in July 2021 when there was a consultation on this that it was going to look to bring new legislation forward but it hasn't um, so I think in terms of changes in culture um, I, I think what we're seeing is much more of a zero tolerance approach and sometimes what that means, you know, for a senior person who might be accused is that they're much more likely to be dismissed or threatened with dismissal than they would have been before. Um, for, for something that might, might have been seen before as a kind of relatively minor infraction. Um, we, we certainly have seen a shift in terms of whether it's the person who complains who's being pushed and being exited out or whether, in fact, it's the person who's been complained about who's, who's being pushed. So we've seen that as well. Um, I, I think there's much more of a willingness on the part of employees to speak up about harassment against other people. So we've dealt with some cases where it, it may not have been the individual who was the victim, if you like, or the alleged victim who's spoken up, but, um, but colleagues who, who believe they've witnessed something that was inappropriate. Um, and I mean, I think just generally within organisations, there's much more of a willingness to, to take things forward, uh, to take it, things seriously if someone comes forward and not just to brush it under the carpet, not to be incredulous. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the things that, that I've seen. I think the other thing is just bringing you know employers wanting to be seen to handle this kind of thing very very uh, you know at arm's length almost and bringing in independent investigators and I think what that means it, it doesn't happen in every case um, but I think what that means is that a senior person who may have been accused um, of inappropriate conduct 
doesn't feel the same kind of protection that they might have with, with their other kind of senior colleagues prepared to back them up. Um, and I suppose the impact on, on people generally is, you know, on senior people generally, I'd say if they're, if they're having to deal with one of these allegations, uh, perhaps manage the process when, when a colleague has been accused, is that they won't, there's a big awareness now that they don't want to get that process wrong. They don't want to come out and tribunalize the bad guy, if you like. And there's an awareness that even that they may well be judged in the court of public opinion, that the whole thing could come out in public. And so they want to make sure that all the steps they take are correct um, and proper and seem to be unbiased and impartial. So I think those are those are some of the cultural shifts I've seen. Yeah, I totally agree that that sort of enthusiasm for proper process, I think, is really has been really a sort of um, an important shift that actually people aren't employers aren't willing to sort of brush this kind of thing under the carpet and they will um you know take the take it on they will um you know really go through the follow the proper steps and go through the proper procedures um and marie can i come to you in the netherlands and what and what you're seeing there and is it similar to what you're hearing from around the screen oh yeah absolutely and uh, thank you in the netherlands things have also certainly changed since hashtag me too um the subject itself of course has been become much easier to discuss and when it occurs in the workplace managers and employers often do not know how to deal with it so this is the immediate panic might be at the expense of a careful investigation uh, employers are afraid of reputational damage and sometimes act too quickly and in the netherlands there has been like the others a more much cultural shift uh, because also employees are uh, much more willing to discuss the difficulties um, and also senior executives pay much closer attention to what's going to happen and to do their own part and legally there has not been uh, a real change there was uh, there is of course the obligation for employers to provide a safe working environment so the, the employer has to provide a working environment free of bullying aggression and of course also sexual harassment uh, but there has not been a law of any kind to prevent this from happening so uh, the main focus is on getting these regulations in place and for example providing a confident counselor so people can turn to this person Thank you. And um, Claire, you mentioned um, independent investigations and, and ex getting external people and, and sort of keeping that investigation at arm's length. And I think one of the most interesting things that came out for me, at least of our session in, in June, was the, was the sort of very strict process that's followed in Belgium. And Ingo, I wonder if you could just sort of talk us through that about how that looks. I don't know where they got the idea, but in Belgium they have decided um, to not let the employer alone nor the employee and they have organized a system of an external prevention advisor that takes over this kind of investigations this means when or the employer or the employee thinks that there is a problem with regard to harassment sexual or other harassment that an independent body recognized as such by the government 
starts an investigation on what happened in the uh, company. And on the basis of that external investigation, where almost everybody is heard on the facts, there will be a report. And on the basis of that report, the employer is obliged to take action. So it's, it's actually a quite easy way to take care because there are professionals that will take care of the investigation. As an employer, you, you're obliged to do so. So you don't have the choice, which I think makes it easier for the employer because they have to do it. And uh, what a very um, interesting point is, is that the person that, that made the complaint is protected against dismissal. So they don't have to worry about a termination of their contract because you can't terminate the contract of an employee due to the fact that he made that complaint. So it's a, a very good structure. The problem is that not always that those external prevention advisors doing a very good job, but when they do, it's a very, very useful instrument to take action. On the other side, given the fact that the, the person, the employee, is protected against dismissal due to that complaint, from time to time it's also abused by employees to make sure that they're not, when they feel that they're going to be dismissed, that they take that action to to try to avoid that uh, to be dismissed. Okay, that's one of the things I was going to ask, Ingrid. Yeah. If, if allegations are made in bad faith in, in order to obtain that protection, is there is there a sort of, how can employers manage that and senior management teams well, manage those kinds of situations? It, it, uh, during the investigation, you hope that it will be very clear that it's only for that reason that somebody made the complaint. Mm -hmm. And prevention advisors know that this can be the case so it's not um, they have to do a prelim preliminary investigation to see if it makes sense what the employee is saying and if not they um, consider it as um, they don't take on the, the, the case and then there is no protection so that's the benefit but I think it's still, it's a, it's a very, very good instrument and it, it is used. It's not um, like the, the law is not used, the system is not used. It's very well used and you get results out of it. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, I think, because certainly in the UK, one of the first decisions an employer has to make is when they're faced with an allegation like this and the, the sort of the board or the management or whoever's making the decisions will have to look at it and go, how are we going to investigate this? Are we going to get an external investigator? If they are, who's that going to be? How do you find an appropriate person? How do you know they're going to do a good job? So having that sort of first stage totally taken out of their hands is a really sort of fascinating approach. Yeah, it's very comfortable. I, um, if employers call me to say we have got a big problem, then um, as of the moment, I tell them that there is a specific procedure with the external advisor that's like they're calming down because they know they can give it out of hand mm. to people who knows more about it and that they, they have not a responsibility weighing on, their, on themselves. Mm. They can give it to somebody else. So 
it's um, they will tell what to do. So it's I can imagine if you're an employer and you know there is sexual or other harassment that you don't know what to do because yeah. who who do you have to believe? What uh, steps needs to be taken? Do you have to dismiss somebody or just uh, coach him to, to act in another way? So that's why it's so useful because there are individual measures that are um, proposed, but also general measures to make sure that it, it will not happen again in the future. Thanks, Inga. It's so interesting. And I think, um, so one of the, the, the panellists who we don't have represented here today from, from the session in June is Ellen Pert, who's a partner at BCL Solicitors, um, who, who's a criminal lawyer and had really interesting insights on sort of the, the criminal employment law crossover. Um, so we can't go into the depth that she would have done were she here. But I think it's interesting just thinking about how that works in different jurisdictions. And I think it's one of the things that employers are very nervous about um, where where an allegation of sexual harassment, where the allegation um, has a potential criminal angle or where there's potential sort of straying into criminal, um, the, the criminal law aspects of, of things. And Lindsay, I just wondered whether you could talk a little bit about whether you see that in the US, how, how that sort of crossover is handled there. Sure, so in the US, it, our criminal court system is separate with different rules than in the civil system. And so oftentimes with the majority of sexual harassment claims, we don't see the allegations in the workplace and most common claims rise to the level perhaps of what uh, would be for criminal elements of claims. So of course, if we have situations of unlawful touching, battery and so forth or worse, those are, are likely going to rise to the level of criminal conduct. And then in those situations, perhaps there may be a tandem criminal investigation or a criminal complaint in conjunction with the civil. In those kind of situations where we see the criminal claims proceeding with a civil claim, because uh, in the United States, lawyers typically don't handle civil claims and criminal claims, they'll specialize in one area, it wouldn't be uncommon to have criminal lawyers working in tandem if we're talking about a senior executive perhaps that's been alleged to have engaged in wrongdoing. You may have a criminal defense lawyer working in tandem with a civil defense lawyer to be handling those kind of claims. But the, the common uh, procedures that we see, the common claims is that this sexual harassment allegations don't rise to the level of uh, criminal conduct. But if they do, then we would see that kind of uh, tandem procedure ensue. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing more and more um, that sort of crossover happening in the UK where there are simultaneously reports made to the police and reports made to the employer of, um, of sexual harassment or sexual assault in the workplace or otherwise. And I think so, so that really important just to to tread really carefully when those do when there is that crossover and um, to ensure that you're not doing you as an employer or as an individual involved in an investigation and not doing anything which sort of treads on the toes of any criminal investigation um, so that leads us on to um, non-disclosure agreements and the approach that is taken to those in different jurisdictions and in different cases and i think um following it's just worth sort of talking a bit about how that has come up and why it's particularly relevant here. And I think certainly in the UK, um, the, the, there was a lot of attention paid to confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements, particularly in sexual harassment claims, where um, uh, 
because following the Harvey Weinstein allegations, there was a Zelda Perkins was someone who worked with Harvey Weinstein. She blew the whistle on the fact that she had been asked to sign, made to sign a very, very onerous NDA following um, having made allegations against Harvey Weinstein. And that gave rise to an awful lot of uh, attention, press attention, regulatory attention in the UK about um, particularly about sort of people who are sort of serial offenders like Harvey Weinstein, but just more generally the kind of terms that people were asked to sign up to in order to sort of gag them, I use that in inverted commas, um, following a, a sexual harassment um, allegation being made and how that works and, and what that looks like. I just wonder, Claire, if you could just talk us through what the, um, what, what the restrictions or sort of rules on using an NDA in the UK look like and and also think about sort of why people put NDAs into those kinds of agreements, what the potential benefits might be. Yeah, yeah, I think there's been a huge cultural shift on, on this, you know, since I started in practice where it was just assumed any settlement agreement you sign in relation to any dispute you might have as an employee and employer would include an NDA on both parties. So that, that's kind of standard in the UK um, and it may not be so in other jurisdictions, but but that's something we, we kind of all accepted as pretty standard. Um, I think obviously since Weinstein and what you've mentioned, Beth, there has been a revisiting of this. Um, and I suppose there's been a campaign called Camp By My Silence, which is is trying to um, really push for there to be a position or legislation that means that NDAs um, cannot be imposed on employees in sexual harassment, pregnancy, discrimination, other types of human rights violations. We currently do have some restrictions on the use of NDAs, so you can't prevent someone making a protected disclosure or blowing the whistle after they've signed a settlement agreement. You can't prevent somebody reporting criminal conduct to the police, etc., or making a report to a regulator. Um, and while there hasn't been new legislation, the SRA, which is the body that regulates solicitors, lawyers in the UK, issued a warning notice in 2020, which essentially said that if there's a solicitor involved in advising on an agreement for an employer, um, that certain um, provisions cannot be included in an NDA, that there should be nothing in there that impedes or deters an individual from making any of the reports that they're allowed to make or from taking advice from professional advisors. And that would include uh, speaking to a therapist or a doctor, for example, as well as taking tax and legal advice. Um, and so if you're advising an individual on their settlement agreement, as a solicitor, you're also obliged to explain those terms to, to the individual before they sign off on any settlement. Um, I mean, my view, and you know, I act for a lot of individuals, is that there can be benefits to NDAs that are on both parties in some cases. I think they can facilitate an early settlement. So um, there might be a situation where an, individ an individual has gone through a long process already, doesn't want to continue with litigation, um, and there's value to the employer in resolving things without them being made public. Um, and that means that the employer comes to the table earlier than they, than they otherwise would. I suppose the question is, would it make a difference if there was only 
you know, a one-sided duty of confidentiality on the employer? Would it prevent employers wanting to settle cases? And I think in most cases, it probably wouldn't because what they're settling is the legal claims that the individual is threatening to bring or has brought. Um, but I think there are a subset of cases where perhaps the individual has been very damaged by the process or they have claims, but the claims are not strong claims because the claims might be out of time, for example, which a lot of sexual harassment cases are, um, or unusually the employer is prepared to defend them. And in those cases, it might be the confidentiality provision that brings the employer to the table. Um, what I would say is that I advise you know, individuals who, who are whistleblowers um, and they cannot be prevented from blowing the whistle after settling and employers are still prepared to settle with them. So those are my thoughts, really. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because I think we can all see that people shouldn't be sort of prevented from speaking up where these things have happened and particularly where there are where there are sort of egregious and potentially sort of repeated um, sexual harassment allegations. And I think it's a pretty sensitive and tricky area. Lindsay, if I can come to you to talk about California and how I, I think you guys are sort of leading the way on, on what, a, what a sort of restriction on, in, on an NDA and sexual harassment cases might look like. Previously, most states and really the general idea and even federal law was that uh, an employer cannot prevent a employee from disclosing information, factual information that occurs uh, in the wake of any kind of or in the event of a federal investigation. So they can't prohibit an employee from participating in uh, investigation if it's a criminal investigation or otherwise, or providing truthful testimony uh, in response to a subpoena or otherwise as it relates to that. But California and other states now have gone step further by prohibiting an employer if they're requiring an employee to sign a non-disclosure agreement or even non-disparagement agreement. So the language of the agreement has to provide an exclusion that says that none of the non-disclosure or non-disparagement provisions prohibit an employee from discussing or disclosing information about unlawful acts in the workplace, including possible harassment, retaliation, and discrimination. So um, allowing employees to be able to freely discuss those kind of situations, even in the event of a non-disclosure or non-disparagement agreement. And even more recently on a federal level, President Biden actually signed into law um, uh, regulations about forced arbitration, prohibiting employees from subjecting their claims to, or prohibiting employers from subjecting sexual harassment claims to arbitration. And so that it is also with regard to uh, the laws in the United States really moving towards a trend of prohibiting that kind of confidentiality around sexual harassment claims, either by non-disclosure, non-disparagement, or in an arbitration tribunal where those allegations may be still kept uh, confidential. And so that's the kind of the trends that we've seen in the United States so far. Thanks, Lindsay. And, um... Anne-Marie, so just you talk to us about the sort of restrictions on any, if there are any, on using confidentiality provisions in this kind of case in the Netherlands. NDAs are still negotiated by employers uh, when it comes to sexual harassment. Uh, there are no restrictions under Dutch law, making, for example, an arrangement with an employee 
Um, so secrecy clauses can um, get the truth uh, covered. So it prevents discovery of the truth. Um, everything is almost possible in the, the Netherlands to agree on. Uh, of course, you have to um, abide the law, like uh, you can't go past common decency or uh, or law, of course, uh, what you discussed, but in contract law, almost everything is possible to keep the truth inside the company. So you can enforce silence with a big or high penalty clause uh, to not get the truth out. Uh, there has been uh, a trade union in the Netherlands tried to, uh, they come up with a proposal to prohibit confidentiality clauses when it comes to uh, sexual har harassment. Uh, they wanted to make it an amendment under the Whistleblowers Act, uh, but this, well, it was not accepted yet, uh, but this would reveal or this would allow victims to reveal the truth um, as a whistleblower, which of course would be a huge step, uh, but it doesn't seem, it's not likely that this will be accepted soon. So for the time being, there are no district of restrictions whatsoever on NDAs when it comes to sexual harassment. Thank you. So I think, I mean, I think one of the most interesting pieces of all of this is the sort of regulatory uh, and sort of the, the as I've, we've already talked about sort of criminal law clashing not clashing but combining with the employment law and the employment position there's also the regulatory piece for anyone in sort of financial services and the legal profession or in any other regulated profession and i think that kind of increased interest in this area culturally has really led to a shift certainly in the uk in how regulators look at um sexual harassment allegations and what they might call sort of non-financial misconduct um and uh, as well as the use of ndas which you already touched on claire um, so I think, how does that impact, do you think, on sort of individual directors or senior executives, Claire, in the UK on sort of their, the risks they face and the obligations they might face? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely the regulators in the UK are um, really focused on this now. Um, in terms of financial services, we have a particular regime regulated by the, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, and the senior managers regime, which is part of that, focuses on fitness and propriety, um, integrity, um, and requires individuals to act with integrity and acting in a way that's where you're sexually harassing somebody could well be considered to be um, a breach of that principle. Um, there's also a concern, I think, that more broadly the culture of workplaces um, is, it, it, this is an indicator of a bad workplace culture. The FCA has, has indicated that, that is the case if sexual harassment is happening because it suggests that there's a lack of psychological safety. So it is something that they're very interested mm -hmm. in. I, I think from the point of uh, the view of individuals, um, who are regulated, there is a concern that if an allegation is made against them, um, the employer may think they need to notify the FCA immediately if it's a serious enough allegation. But in any event, once some kind of investigation has been carried out, they would they would be and and findings of some kind have been made, initial findings maybe at the investigation stage, then the employer would be very likely to notify the FCA. Um, and that just means that 
an individual may feel that they have no alternative but to go through a process um, and, and have it concluded by the employer. And the employer has quite a lot of power in this situation because if they dismiss somebody following an allegation of sexual harassment um, and they conclude that they have to make a report to the FCA about the individual's conduct, then it can also mean that they withhold or that they have to mention this on a regulatory reference mm. that they're obliged to give. So this this incident can follow somebody through their career and there isn't really a, an adequate way for the individual to um, to really challenge that or appeal that the decision is left with the employer if you like the FCA has kind of subcontracted that aspect to the employer and it's a long-term um, issue for them isn't it because it looks back yeah. six years looks, looks back years, so yeah so they, they will need to get a regulatory reference from that employer for for a further six years if they if they're going into any kind of uh, regulated role elsewhere. So it's a really serious issue. Um, it's interesting, the SRA, which is the um, body that regulates solicitors, so lawyers, who we also act for a lot of lawyers, um, have just last Thursday issued, 1st of September, issued guidance on non-financial misconduct and the approach that they will take. They've clarified the approach that they're going to yeah. take they've said things that we would expect them to say they're going to be interested in misconduct that happens in the office or the workplace they're going to be interested in anything that amounts to criminal conduct or that has resulted in a criminal conviction even if it has nothing to do with the workplace right because that's yeah. to do with the trust in the profession um but they've also said they will still look at conduct which is not criminal and which takes place outside of the office but it has to have some kind of nexus to the workplace um, and they'll be looking at things like abuse of authority in particular. Um, yeah, when, so that kind when, of seniority gap that. between perpetrators. Yeah, the se yeah, exactly. Seniority gap and so on. And again, an individual who's been accused of, of sexual misconduct in a, let's say, in a regulated firm, a, a solicitor's firm, um, will be concerned that the employer may well have already made a report to the SRA before the individuals even be notified of it because if the allegations are serious enough the employer may feel they have an obligation to do so also if something hits the headlines about a particular firm even if an individual is not named the SRA may well just phone up the firm and say what's going on I want you to explain what this is all about so the SRA have quite far-reaching powers in that way and individuals will need to be thinking about their own obligations and their own potential reporting obligations absolutely yeah as, as a regulated individual, yeah. uh, you know, both in financial services and um, in the legal sector, yeah. every individual has those kind of obligations too. Yeah. And Anne-Marie, just on, is there ever an obligation on individual senior executives, senior in people within an organisation to report to a regulator or, or, or to the police if there's, if there's an allegation of this type in the Netherlands? No, an additional, there's no such thing as a reporting obligation, uh, not to the police or regulator. Uh, of course, as I said before, the obligation the employer has is to provide a safe working environment. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, brings uh, the, this obligation to the employer. Uh, but the most important condition is that the victim can go to the independent person. Uh, of course, being hurt is then the first step, and for this purpose, the um, employer should appoint um, a confidential advisor. Um, 
and of course, it, it's. I think Claire also said that it's um, it's absolutely important to have a, a safe culture. So the employer clearly has to state that sexual harassment and other transgressive behavior is just not tolerated. Uh, but there's no obligation to report, but of course the other obligations the employer has. Do they, so is that, is that an obligation to provide a safe place of work? But is that, does, does it yeah. go beyond that? Is there, an, is there a positive obligation to prevent sexual harassment? There, of course, there are, from being a good employer, the positive obligations are to get regulations in place and to get all the uh, things in order so people feel safe and they feel that they can talk about it. And of course, this has, uh, this will uh, change because like uh, somebody also said before, um, the person who now uh, has this transgressive behavior is much more likely to get punished for this than before me too so the you can employees can more talk about it but the employer is also much more aware that there has to be something done about this and lindsay in the us is there any this sort of this idea of a positive obligation to prevent sexual harassment is there any sort of express obligation on employers you touched on it a little bit at the start on policies but just just if you could just explore that a little bit yeah, so similar to what Anne-Marie was explaining, we do have positive obligations to prevent uh, sexual harassment, especially when the employer's been put on notice of the actual sexual harassment occurring. And the question of notice is often litigated. When was an employer put on notice? Because it can be through its managers and agents. It doesn't have to be through a formal complaint process. So that's why we see these common trends now of employers really making sure that they have a clear policy for reporting. Not only does it help the employees to understand where to submit their complaint, but it also helps the employers to ensure that they're getting those complaints and they're not being stopped by some rogue manager or somebody who doesn't know how to properly handle or escalate that so that the employers can have the opportunity to investigate those complaints and make sure that they're stopping the sexual harassment from occurring. It's also the rationale behind a lot of these new trends in the sexual harassment training. For example, in California, part of the sexual harassment prevention training requires employ employers to educate employees on their complaint process and to actually disseminate a complaint process as part of the training so that there are clear guidelines as to how to complain and where to complain to. Thank you. And Ingo, is there any sort of absolute obligations on positive obligations on employers in, in Belgium to prevent sexual harassment? Or is that something that's sort of just covered by your health and safety provisions? Well, we have the same rules like in uh, the Netherlands. They're quite similar. So the general obligation to make sure that your employees are safe. Um, and once you know that they're not safe, that you're act, because we have also the obligation, um, which is criminally sanctioned. If you do not help people in need, uh, you can be condemned. Uh, so this is an, this is an uh, important point. Of course, it's not like um, if somebody tells you that she was raped, you do not have the obligation to go to the police. You only have the obligation to prevent that it happens again um, as employer. Um, 
also, if you see that it continues and you do nothing, then it's the then it falls under um, the fact that you do not help a person in uh, distress. So there are some general rules which are not um, invented just because of the harassment mm. and not because of the employers. But if we put them all together, then an employer cannot simply sit still and do nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so in the UK, Claire, I'll come to you in a sec, but I think in the UK that that obviously employers do have an obligation to provide a safe place of work, but that has never really been used as a way of enforcing any anti-harassment policies. Um, and certainly the health and, Sa health and safety executive in the UK is not, it's not something that they are particularly interested in. And that's why there have been sort of pushes to, to have, have enforcement from other areas. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, the, as I said earlier, there was a consultation on this in the summer of 2021. And the, the government committed to making certain changes, one of which was to bring in a mandatory duty on employers to protect workers from harassment and victimisation, which is not on employers at the moment. I mean, at the moment, most employers will have things like policies and anti-harassment training and so forth, because it helps them defend claims. But this kind of positive obligation isn't there. Um, and there were various other um, suggestions included in that. So, at the, but, but there's been no progress on that. It wasn't included in the legislation that's due to be put before Parliament this year, back in May. Um, so uh, it seems to be on the long finger. As I said earlier, we've had lots going on politically in the UK in, in the last few months. So we are, we are, in fact, speaking on the day in which a new prime minister has been chosen. Just so, been chosen. Yeah. yeah. So um, it doesn't seem to be a top priority. No, absolutely. There are, um, yeah, there are other things going on, but um, hopefully there will be some some progress in that in the not too distant future. So I was going to wrap up there. So firstly, thank you so much to Inga, Claire, Anne-Marie and Lindsay for your contributions today. It's been really interesting. Um, I feel like we could have talked for longer. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening. If you do have any questions or would like to discuss any of these matters further, please do get in touch. And we look forward to seeing you all at the IFSI conference next year. Thanks so much.